This Late Hour presents The Genesis Problem. It is a thing most wonderful, almost too wonderful to be. After that, the hymn rather went off the rails, but those first two lines uh, have inspired me ever since. Inherent in this worldview is that somehow Noah and his family were able to build a wooden ship that would house. 14,000 individuals, there are 7,000 kinds, and then, so it's about 14,008 people. And these people were unskilled. As far as anybody knows, they had never built a wooden ship before. It is a thing most wonderful that on this once barren rock, orbiting a rather mediocre star on the edge of a rather ordinary galaxy, on this rock, a remarkable process called evolution by natural selection has given rise to the magnificent diversity of complexity of life. I need to know if she really thinks dinosaurs were here 4,000 years ago. That's an important. I want to know that. I really do. Because she's going to have the nuclear codes. You know, I, I want to know if she thinks dinosaurs were here 4,000 years ago. The elegance, the beauty, and the illusion of design which we see all around us, brought together by this mechanical, automatic, unplanned, unconscious process, evolution by natural selection. That's not just true, it's beautiful. And it I'm your host, Casey Knowlton. Welcome back to the podcast, everyone. It's good to be back with you. I apologize once again for there being a little bit of a longer delay there between the last two episodes. Um, Just among things getting more busy with the holidays, we also had a refrigerator go out, so it was kind of an interesting uh, couple of weeks. But all that to say, it's good to be back, and we are continuing the Genesis problem today. And really what I had in mind today was just to make some observations from the first three chapters of Genesis and why it is so scripturally important. That really this is the bedrock and foundation of all of scripture. And there's great problems that arise from people, even those who are well-meaning within the church, who seek to uh, add in long gaps of time or uh, start to mess around with what the scriptures actually say. Additionally, I do think we're seeing some some very troubling things that have been coming up uh, as of late as well. Certainly, there are disagreements about the age of the earth and some of these other issues, which, uh, you know, for all intents and purposes, are secondary issues. They are not an orthodox issue. But when philosophers and theologians and uh, teachers of the scriptures start 
trying to add things to the story of Genesis. It's not just that we're looking at it as, um, you know, a, a young earth versus an old earth. When we start tweaking things and trying to wrap in evolution into Genesis, we start getting into some real problems. So really today, I'm not going to be necessarily addressing the issue of evolution. It's what I hope to do um, in the coming, in the next episode. In fact, I'm hoping to bring back Dr. Ben's scripture and just talk about some recent uh, interviews that were done with Dr. William Lane Craig and Jason Swamidas about uh, some of their views on Genesis and trying to fold in evolution and early man into Genesis and honestly creating a lot of problems. But today what I'm going to do is just share seven observations from Genesis that really just showcase why it is so important. I mean, much has been said about the book of Genesis over the centuries. Divisions in churches about its historicity have really been a more recent phenomenon. But in large part, it's the theory of evolution and the assumptions that come from prescribing to it that have created many of these problems. Was man formed out of the dust by God's hand thousands of years ago? Or has he evolved from an ape over millions of years into what we are today? The Bible is quite clear about which of these views is accurate. As we've discussed in previous episodes, there's good scientific evidence to support the special creation of man along with a global flood. It all comes down to our assumptions about the data, putting those assumptions under scientific and theological scrutiny. If you're interested in pursuing more about the hard facts that support the early chapters of Genesis, I would recommend both the Answers in Genesis and Genesis Apologetics Ministries, which can be found online. Additionally, a great film uh, put out, uh, I think about a year ago now, titled uh, Is Genesis History, is also definitely worth a look. And I think all of these ministries can be found on YouTube, or just if you Google them, uh, you should be able to find them. I will put links in the show notes. So today, as a celebration of the seven days of creation, I'm going to be making seven observations from the first three chapters of Genesis. Now, as we're walking through these observations, it will be evident why dismissing the creation account as myth or fable creates multiple theological problems. Many sharp, highly intelligent scholars, scientists, and theologians, some of them I already named, are just have been unable to let go of their assumptions related to evolution or deep time and have sought to fold one or both assumptions into the biblical text. Now, Really, this is a classical case of an eisegetical interpretation of Scripture versus an exegetical one. Now, eisegetical, or eisegesis, is when an author brings their own ideas and their bias into the text, having it say what they would like it to say by bringing in these ideas, versus the exegetical, or exegesis, which attempts to stay as close to the original interpretation as possible, really just letting the text and the author speak for themselves. Now, in this latter view, that is the one I will attempt to hold to on this show, really just comparing Scripture to itself for the most accurate interpretation of authorial intent. Now, as I dive into my observations today, it would be easy for this observational list to reach closer to 70 versus 7. There is so much that can be unpacked from Genesis, particularly in these first three chapters, with, you know, with the origin of man and the origin of everything. Uh, you know, the, the fall of man and all that that happens there in the garden. Many, many scholars more intelligent than I have been 
uh, dissecting the book of Genesis for many, many, many decades. But in the interest of time, uh, I can't go through 700 different elements of Genesis. So today I'm just going to keep to some simple observations and just give seven. Uh, as I said, seven is sort of a celebration uh, of those seven days of creation that we read about in these first three chapters. Before we get into that, though, I'd like to say a short prayer, and then I will begin my seven observations on issues of foundational importance from the first three chapters of Genesis. Father God, just thank you for this time that we have to look at your scriptures, to look at this foundational book of the Bible. Lord God, and to see what you have said about uh, man's origins and your intent also for man and woman and for uh, the whole world. Lord God, I just pray that those listening would have the eyes to see and ears to hear all that you have for us today through your scriptures. And Lord God, that this would bless them, Lord, as, as just as it has blessed me as I've been digging into these things for this episode. I just consecrate this time and this podcast over to you, Lord. I ask your blessing on it, and I ask it in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So the first observation would be this. Without God, nothing would exist. In the beginning, God is how the book of Genesis begins. Now, this may seem like an obvious observation, but it cannot be overstated. God is the great uncaused cause, the one who has always been and always will be. When Moses asked God what his name was in the book of Exodus, God responded, I am who I am. As the story of creation unfolds, we see that God is the creator of everything, from the heavens and the earth, to light, water, rock, all plants and trees, the sun, moon, and the stars, all aquatic life, birds, land mammals, and insects, and of course, mankind. Now this is a far cry from the slow, random processes of evolutionary theory, which suggests that all life started in a puddle of goo billions of years ago. As it states in Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Buzz Aldrin understood this fact when he and Neil Armstrong first landed on the moon in July of 1969. His first act was to call for a moment of contemplation. All right, Houston, Tranquility, over. Tranquility, Houston, go ahead. Roger, this is the LEM pilot. I'd like to take this opportunity to ask Every person listening in, whoever, wherever they may be, to pause for a moment and contemplate the events of the past few hours and to give thanks in his or her own way. He opened his personal preference kit Over. and pulled out a small wafer along with a silver cup of communion wine. After quietly praying and reading through John 15:5, in which Jesus stated, I am the vine, and you are the branches. Whoever remains in me and I in him will bear much fruit, for you can do nothing without me. Aldrin ate of the bread and drank of the cup. When reflecting back on this some 50 years later, he stated, It was interesting to think that the very first liquid ever poured on the moon and the very first food eaten there were communion elements. Once they had explored the moon's surface and prepared to head back to Earth, Aldrin quoted Psalm 8, 3-4. 
When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him, and the son of man that you care for him? My second observation is this. Mankind is made in the image of God, both male and female. The Imago Dei, that is what we are, God's special creation. It is this distinction that brings our intrinsic worth. We are not the product of random chance descended from apes. We reflect our creator through our intellect, emotions, and will. This is not a likeness that is skin deep. It is in our very nature. When one understands and holds to this truth, its impact informs their lives. Why should we value the life of the unborn, or any life for that matter? Why do we reject racism or human trafficking? It is because we are made in God's image. Returning to Psalm 8, we read in verses 5 and 6, Yet you made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. It is why the deception of evolution is so devastating. We have clearly seen throughout history the fruit of holding to the belief in that false theory. When Hitler began rounding up the Jews for extermination, it was because he believed that his race was superior. It's the same reason they slaughtered the disabled and the handicapped, for it was survival of the fittest. It's the same thinking that led Margaret Singer, founder of Planned Parenthood, to say, we do not want word to go out that we want to exterminate the Negro population, and the minister is the man who can straighten out that idea if it ever occurs to any of their more rebellious members. The sad irony is that there is no such thing as race, only the human race, for we all descend from Adam and Eve. This is not only a theological certainty, but a scientific one, as we have discussed earlier in this Genesis Problem series. Number three. Marriage and family were established at the beginning of creation. Why in this day and age are so many forces aligned to destroy the nuclear family along with gender itself? Many of the Marxists working to deconstruct the family think they are undoing the evil colonial patriarchy, not realizing that these ideas did not start with Western civilization. No, it has been this way since the beginning. Man was formed from the dust, but woman was formed from the rib brought from his side. When Adam first beheld Eve, he stated, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. The text goes on to say, For this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Jesus likewise, when firing back at the Pharisees regarding a question about divorce, stated, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? He goes on to say, They are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Though this is a reference to divorce, I think it absolutely applies to those trying to end the family structure today. Let no one sever what God has put together. It's the same reason such notions of gay marriage, for instance, have no place within our churches. The very term is a contradiction. One man and one woman have been modeled for us since the dawn of time. It is only through such a union that children may be brought forth into the world. God states in the first chapter of Genesis, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Number four, God sets the standard. Why should we just not all be polygamists? That is, have more than one spouse. 
Why is marriage only between a man and a woman? Why can't there be more than two genders? Who says the work week needs to be only six days with one off for rest? Why is the year 365 days? There is a way things work, because God is the one who has established them. Apart from telling Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply, the only true command was this. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For on the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Now why God put the tree there at all is a question that has been debated throughout the centuries. For the scriptures do not specifically tell us that. What they do tell us is that it was God who put it there. And as the creator, it was within his authority to decide what could and could not be done. As his creations, it is our duty to follow him and the path that he has put out before us, laid out in the scriptures. Number five, God blesses the seventh day. As previously mentioned, why do we have a seven-day calendar week? It all comes back to the beginning, marking the end of God's creation week. Genesis 2, 1-3 states it this way, Thus the heavens and the earth were completed, and all their hosts. By the seventh day God completed his work, which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work, which he had created and made. Herein lies the difficulty in dismissing the days of creation as literal 24-hour days. Much later on, decades after the flood, God establishes his covenant with the Hebrews at Mount Sinai. When Moses was given the tablets of stone, the Ten Commandments, what was God's fourth command? It reads as follows. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you or your son or your daughter, your male or your female servant, or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. God references his creation week as the reason a day of rest was established. For just as he rested on the seventh day, the Israelites were to do the same. It is my personal conviction that this command still holds true today, but that is a topic for another podcast. Number six, original glory. In church culture, we talk much about original sin, but not much about original glory. After God had finished creating, before resting on the seventh day, he declared all that he had made was good. It states, God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. It's one of the flaws of seeing the earth as old, as the secular scientific community claims. For if there were long ages before the creation of man, then the world would have been full of death and disease, even though the fall of man hadn't occurred yet. Why would God call his creation good if it were full of cancer? The ancient world before the fall was a time of glory in paradise. Everything was as it was meant to be, without pain or suffering or death. It's a great promise of God's coming kingdom, where all will be set right in the world again. And number seven, original sin. Yes, we come to it at last, the pivotal moment when all was changed forever. The devil comes in as the form of a serpent and tempts Eve to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the other beasts of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? 
And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Now, on top of the fact that we can see why we all wear clothes, given this bit of scripture, both the woman and the man here are deceived, violating God's commandment, for which the consequences are severe. As the story unfolds and God confronts Adam about what has happened, he blames Eve. When God confronts Eve, she shifts blame to the serpent. God then lays out a series of judgments, curses, really, because of what has been done. He curses the serpent. He then promises painful childbirth for the woman and grueling work for the man. The very ground is now cursed, producing thorns and thistles. Piles of books and commentaries have been reflected on all of these early chapters of Genesis and what they have to offer. But I'd like to focus in on one last central idea that comes from the fall of man in this last seventh point. As God is cursing the serpent, he declares, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. Here we see God giving a foreshadowing of Christ, right here in the third chapter of Genesis. This foreshadowing continues when we see the need for a sacrifice to cover Adam and Eve in their shame. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Now, how would God have made these garments from skin? His creation work had ended on the seventh day. So clearly an animal was sacrificed, one provided by God's own hand. Now, while we cannot be sure what type of animal was slain, we see in the future during the making of God's covenant with the Hebrews, animal sacrifice was instituted in order to cover the sins of the people. It is a system that ended a few decades after Christ's ascension, for he was the final sacrifice, one to cover the sins of man once for all. It is, I believe, why we have not seen the return of the sacrificial system, for God's wrath has been satisfied through the death of his only Son, the only one able to carry the sins of all the world, both past, present, and future. As Paul states in 1 Corinthians 15.22, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. It is here why we see, among many other reasons, why Genesis is so important in the canon of Holy Scriptures. For it is in the beginning when death and sin enter the world, and it is only through Christ that this condition may be remedied. Much more could be said about the book of Genesis. I could have spent an entire podcast episode on each of those individual seven points, and have simply given a short, condensed version today. Now, certainly in future seasons, we will return to dig in further, but before season one ends, it is my hope to connect once more with Dr. Ben's scripture to discuss some very disappointing news related to the theologians Dr. William Lane Craig, along with Jason Swamidas, as I mentioned earlier in the episode, as both have been attempting to shoehorn evolution into the Genesis account. Following the episode with Dr. Ben's scripture, I will have a season finale tying many of the points made throughout this first season together. Thank you so much for listening today. If you are enjoying the show, please leave a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts and tell your friends. 
You can also help today by clicking on the ACAST supporter link or becoming an official patron of the show. Don't forget to check out our Facebook page to leave comments or questions, or on Twitter at Casey Knowlton. That's at K-A-S-E-Y-K-N-O-W-L-T-O-N. You can also email me at thislatehourpodcast at gmail.com. If you have ideas for future episodes for Season 2, please send them my way. I'd love to hear from you. And with that, our episode comes to a close. And thank you all for listening today. Stay on the alert, dear Christian. Until next time, God bless. You have been listening to This Late Hour. Your contribution helps pay our fees, improve our equipment, and build better content. It is my hope that your continued support of our show may bring future interviews and exclusives. Our goal is to always be improving our show so that the church may be strengthened in our mission to bring salt and light to this present darkness. May God richly bless you.